Hello everyone, this is Natalie from Podcasting is Praxis. Um, you're about to hear the much-hyped climate change uh, episode of the podcast, but first we just wanted to open with an apology. Um, it's come to our attention that in recent episodes there have been comments made which have been hurtful to members of the community, um, so we want to hold our hands up and acknowledge that. Um, it may have been implied that Flaming Hot is the best flavour of Monster Munch. This is of course Sorry comrades, we're experiencing some technical difficulties at the moment. If you bear with me, I'll have you back with Natalie for the rest of the announcement. Thank you for your patience and your continued adherence to good podcast unity and correct flavour opinions. It's the one true flavour. Um, so yes, we got that wrong. We listened. We're sorry. Um, please help uh Bear with us as we do better in future. Um, anyway, the climate change episode is coming up, as I said. Um, we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago. So before we start, we just wanted to acknowledge uh, recent news that Extinction Rebellion are doing their thing again this week. Um, so just to touch on some brief headlines from that, um, before protests had even started, uh, cops were arresting protesters, uh, breaking into their warehouses and seizing some of their kind of equipment as well. Uh, meanwhile, in Germany, protesters patiently waited for the police while they took a toilet break because I guess the police asked very nicely. Um, and over in France, Extinction Rebellion members have been applauding as um, members get quietly and safely arrested without any hassle. Um, so that's all going great. Um, so um, that's it from me. I'm going to leave you in past Natalie's capable hands as she's joined with some very fun friends. We're going to have a chat about climate change, what's happening, why it's a problem, what we can do about it. So yeah, enjoy. Stick those words down your ear holes. It's your girl Natalie and this is Podcasting with Praxis. We are a socialist collective who like to get on the mic and chat shit about some very interesting things. Um, so that means because we're a collective, it's different people jumping in every app, talking about the things that they like, the things they're interested in. So it's, I uh, guess it's best to introduce you to today's crew. Hello, I'm James. I'm new. I might know a little bit from years ago about what we're talking about, but I can't remember most of it. Uh, I'm Dan. Uh, 
I don't really know much at all about climate scientists. I do know a bit about the weirder ideas around it, though. So I thought I'd drop in and talk about that. Hi, I'm Rob. Um, I work in Brussels. I'm the resident unelected elite and trying to keep control out of all of you. Um, I know a little bit here and there about climate science and uh, mainly from an agricultural perspective, but some other bits here and there. So I'm Matthew, or Maddie. I'm currently an adult student in London studying environmental science. So while I do know stuff about it, I'm still learning stuff about it. Cool. That was everyone, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Love. Yeah, that's everyone. Love a broad stuff. range of ignorance to ideas. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> and as you might have gathered from the introductions, we are talking about climate change. It has happened at last. We got round to uh, having this discussion. Um I do just want to start by saying that my first show was about the DWP. My next show is about climate change. So I am requesting that the next time I show up, that we just talk about hugging dogs for an hour and a half. I think that'd be quite nice. Um, Maybe you can come on after the next election if Jeremy Corbyn wins, you can come on. <laughs> yes, we can have a lovely celebration when that definitely happens. Um, but yeah, climate change. Um, we're not going to do the normal thing of going back over recent news because we're actually recording this in the past for some specific point in the future. So instead, we're just going to kind of have a chat about recent climate news that's been going on in this world over the last few months. So if um, somebody would kind of like to jump in and uh, bring us up to speed on the state of the world. Well, the Amazon's on fire. That's good news. Yeah, we don't need that. (laughs) Sounds bad. And the Arctic is melting. Yeah. The Arctic is melting. It's not Uh, just melting. It's melting quickly. It is also on fire. (laughs) Um, I do want to know how they actually manage that one. We're currently undergoing a mass extinction event. What, as humanity or just? No, just in general. No, actually, we're the only people, so things species so far that are surviving it's the other things that are dying because we are who we are humanity dies out then as with previous mass extinction events everything comes back again just without us just without us which may or may not be a good thing the great thing about climate change or climate catastrophe is that it is a self-correcting problem (laughs) hooray (laughs) um we can find a way to fuck that up too (laughs) yeah but I will say, without humanity, there can't be jam socialism, and therefore that would be bad. Yes, um, it, it's a land of contrasts, we might say, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I think also we you know, want to point out it's not just things being on fire, the ice caps melting. We are also, in our wonderful humanity, managing to screw up in so many different ways, um, such as the oceans being kind of covered in plastic there's uh, the big plastic island off of the pacific which conservative estimates say is the size of texas um but yeah and i've been to texas once and it's it's mentally everything's huge. bigger in texas so everything's yeah. also bigger on plastic island i'm su- surprised that's not become a tax haven yet <laughs> Yeah, but don't worry, there's a 19-year-old Dutch boy called Boyan Slat, who's like done 20 TED Talks by now, and he's got a thing that's going to solve everything. And I don't know if it will, but from everything we've seen so far, that when you've actually put like his giant net in the ocean to scoop it up, <laughs> it doesn't seem to work. 
Imagine that. Capitalism not fixing our problems. Does he just put the net in and get like a thousand old boots out of it? Yeah, that's that's generally the plan. You'd have thought capitalism would have found a way to mine that much plastic by now. <laughs> and that's great. I'll get like the big pieces of plastic, but then the problem is all the small plastic bits of plastic. Because once it's in the yes. ocean, it's churning around, it's getting broken down. It gets down to level of what's called microplastics, and that starts getting into the food supply. Which isn't a problem because it just passes through digestive systems. But what's also becoming of concern is then what becomes of nanoplastics. But the microplastics are breaking down to actually small enough to be absorbed into via the digestion system. And we just we actually cannot actually track nanoplastics. It's just too small. Yeah, and I think it's also it's not just us it's affecting as well. It's also um, kind of like marine wildlife. Um, a lot of um, kind of fish species, uh, marine mammals are not having a fun time at the moment. Yeah, there's plenty of pictures out there of dead animals with like their stomachs cut open. You just see like stuff full of like plastic waste. Don't worry, it's a light podcast, guys. It is a light podcast. Don't worry. Yeah, we will do our best to occasionally be funny. And like we promised that, like we said to ourselves that we were going to have like uh, half of this show at least dedicated to, to solutions so if you're already feeling very depressed then maybe just skip to the second half and you know start figuring out when we start talking about solutions well having murdered all the fish how is the land doing the land's not doing very well um, <laughs> either uh, right now there's a um, uh, there's a lot of concern that the glaciers of Mont Blanc um, one of Europe's highest mountains are actually they're melting at such an extensive rate that they're not even sure anyone's going to be around in a decade or two. Um, this is like one of the most iconic European uh, glaciers. It also feeds fresh water into a lot of the French countryside. It's a you know it's a hugely important part of the ecosystem, and because everywhere on the high altitudes the temperature is rising so quickly, uh, the high altitude species. So I don't know. Maybe you remember from. I think it's one of the David Attenboroughs uh, where they have the snow leopards. Well, the snow leopards are not adjusting very well to living in what's for them an oven either. So they're in trouble. I mean, well. they are called snow leopards. So that's kind of to be expected. It is a pisser when you become suddenly river leopards. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, they can't go that fast uh, that quickly. So that's that's kind of a, an enormous problem. Um, but I think we'll get into some of the more sort of systemic effects uh, a bit later. Uh, the only other thing that I wanted to mention was a, a, a new report that um, a lot of European tree species, so one, among them the ones like you know really from walking around your own local area like ashes, elms, rowans, uh, they're also in, in deep trouble. And that's a combination of climate change, pollution, and also um, new diseases and, and pests that are being pushed up and north because the weather is now warmer. So we, we didn't, these trees have no inherent protection against them. But that's fine. It's not like the Amazon's on fire or anything. Because uh, there's literally a disease called ash dieback currently uh, doing its thing to ash. Yeah. Yeah, ripping through. Um, certainly the UK is in huge trouble with ash dieback. Um, I know that I'm in rural Wales and there's a thing called larch disease, which actually becomes quite a concern almost constantly. It just keeps popping back up every time they get rid of it. Um, and it does, it does seem like it's not going away. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I mean, I think, and I think sort of to, to end the news bit on, because if you're not depressed from listening to this already, then, you know, I don't know what you're taking, but we all want some. Uh, we did want to end the news bit on sort of a slightly more hopeful note, which is that um, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish uh, teenager who started the climate strikes over a year ago, uh, she sailed, you know, sustainably to the US and she did a speech to the United Nations, which was I thought was very powerful. And essentially she said, why am I, you know, why, why am I here wasting my youth? I should be out there having fun, but I have to take responsibility because none of you guys are. She was just kind of basically going, how dare you over and over again while being close to tears. And it was really emotional. Um, and I, I loved it and I love her and she's amazing. Um, yeah, she's fast. She does seem to have pissed off all the all the people that you should be aiming in your life to piss off. So that seems that seems good. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, we're we're gonna come back to um, Greta and the modern youths of today um, when we kind of get to the um, oh those youths. Oh yes, oh, all the youths, the many youths. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we'll come back to them later, but we kind of wanted to start by going a bit in-depth in terms of what are the causes, um, and I'm not an expert, I'm not going to call you guys experts, because as we all know, we have all had enough of experts, but you are all smarty <laughs> pants, as they say, um, so you guys tell me, uh, what's going on, what's the problem? Yeah, well, uh, alright, so it's... It's always really difficult because like, there's no sort of one single line con- uh, uh, origin. Like we can't just say, you know, oh, it's all ExxonMobil. It's all, you know, one thing. This is a very multi- multiple source story. But I think what's a good sort of starting point on it is to say that the, the, the world essentially that we've built since industrialization and certainly in the 20th century where, you know, we – speaking on a global scale and I'm not some sort of Malcolm Gladwell, you know, everything better all the time prick. Um, but what's happened is that, um, not, not just a population increase, but we've increased a lot in welfare and how much, uh, stuff we consume and how many resources we extract to build that stuff. We're also, you may be shocked to hear this also waste quite a lot of that stuff under the current system we've got. No, you don't say. A rather ridiculous amount of all the things that we make never actually really see any use and then just get chucked in the sea to the giant dirt island. Waste under capitalism, you don't say. <laughs> I think I think we have our one simple thing that's a problem. Right there, capitalism. Yes. Yeah, yeah and in, I mean, but, but we have to say, you know, like it's, again, I'm trying not to be Malcolm Gladwell, but there are things that have been become better uh, over time. I mean, like we do live, broadly speaking, in a much more materially comfortable uh, society than we did 100, 120 years ago. Um, But the problem is we've paid for that by, um, you know, a more population. So there's about four times more people now in the world than there were a century ago. Um, But we've increased our resource extraction, particularly to build stuff by 34%, by 34 times. That's a lot more than 34%. Uh, is yes extreme yeah it's 34 times over so yeah you think about like um you know that's not just fossil fuels that's also uh uh sand and mineral ore extraction and all that kind of stuff the the stuff that we've pulled out of the ground essentially to build the world we all live in 
And and that's, I mean, overall climate change has a lot to do with that because of the inefficiencies of the way we, we've taken these resources out of the ground. And certainly, as was just mentioned by, by James, is that we've really used them very inefficiently. Um, so, you know, we're, we're extracting 12 times more fossil fuels than we did before, 27 times more ores and minerals. Um, you know, some like a country like China, which has grown explosively in the last 20 years, um, not just in terms of population, but also in terms of just the general standard of living. You know, they all, 20, 30 years ago, those guys didn't have cars. They all have cars now. So it's that kind of process of resource extraction. Um, that's really increasing. And so it doesn't seem set to stop anytime soon. If, if anything, like with methods like fracking and that, they're just introducing new ways to extract things even quicker. Yeah. It's basically, we've used up yeah. everything we could get easily. So we're just going to come up with more convoluted ways to use up the rest of it, because that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. I mean, um, all the essentially the easy resources that we knew how to get at, like oil in Saudi Arabia, um, coal in the American Southwest, coal in the United Kingdom, like either that stuff is no longer economically viable or we've just, you know, we've exhausted it. So what we're doing now is things like fracking, like we're, we're just like, we're- Fracking, oil sands in Canada. Yeah, tar sands in Canada are just terrifying. Mm. Um, I, I flew over them once in a light aircraft that, you know, it, that's, that's looking at Mordor. That's literally, that's the only comparison I can make. And I think one of the real problems that we, we face under the current, you know, neoliberal moment of capitalism, where it's very, uh, it's always about the individual and the choices you make and that it's, you know, your choices and your responsibilities. Um, so we'll get into some of the solutions that some of that is true, but there are really big systemic challenges that individuals cannot change, like on your own, unless you live in the countryside and you can build your own um, solar panels, you can buy them and install them. Uh, you're going to be reliant for energy generation on the stuff that comes out of the grid. And like you have no say over whether or not the what kind of energy the grid uses if again, you're the average person doesn't grow their own food, so you're dependent on food systems and and land that's being used across the world to fill your supermarket. Well, I, I did move to the countryside and install solar panels, but I did it in South Wales, where there's not really a lot of sun to go around. So <laughs> don't need much yeah. sun for it. Maybe that actually that seems to be getting fixed lately, so maybe I'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, at this rate, you'll be just filling up in January and then just hiding for the rest of the year, just turning the aircon the whole time round. Apparently, that's not good for the atmosphere either. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> no, just, you just point the air condition out the, the opposite way. No, you know that. Oh, yeah, yeah the entire, this entire podcast, I do have my fan pony outside the window just blowing to help a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, Futurama theory of change where we just get a giant ice cube and stick it in the ocean. Oh, it's, it, forecasting what happens later <laughs> <laughs> damn it so yeah i mean the thing is like we've just all and we have to say you know uh, the the advances in resource extraction it has brought significant material welfare to not everybody but to like a lot of people to uh, the like western lot, world not all of it's been basically negative. i think it's fair to say yeah um so i mean the the, the we have to be really careful and we have like nobody should tell you that like 
the way to solve climate change is you personally installing um, light efficient bulbs. Like that's good and you should, but that's not going to make the material difference. Um, and it's really these giant systems of energy generation, food production, transport, um, big industry. That's the stuff that's going to make the real difference in creating any kind of solution. And that's also really the heart of the um, the problem right now. But they'd really like you to believe that it's not. Yeah, I think I think what really kind of makes this clear is that one of the biggest polluters in the world is the U.S. military. Um, <laughs> You know, you can do whatever you like and nothing's going to stop them from flying, you know, hundreds of planes around every day, um, which by itself... It's just, by itself. Yeah, it's just all the jet emissions and everything they use then and all the, the fuel or... Because I've never really worked out how that works. Is it just they do so much travel that they're constantly burning things? I think it's probably a mix of just the amount they're moving planes around and tanks that burn fuel like it's going out of fashion and just blowing things up in general and all of that sort of thing. And of course, it, you know, even if yeah. they're not like doing actions, all of their staff are still training all the time. So even in times of peace, those planes are still flying, the tanks are still driving around. So it's just a non-stop churn. I guess a fun stat. The US military is a bigger polluter than as many as 140 countries. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I mean, but weirdly enough, like, the US is, of course, on the Trump, like, awful and terrible about the whole topic of climate change. But, like, the US military is actually one of the few sectors of the, like, the US commanding heights of the US economy that actually understands the problem of climate change and is, like, really very serious, not so much about preventing it, but they are really strategizing about a scarcity world, a world of resource oh. wars. Like they're very, very serious about stating the problem. And like the problem is their fix is more let's war. build a giant fortress around America. So I yeah. thought that was going to be good news then. That actually turned out to be way more dark than I thought. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting that like, I mean, the US is terrible with this, but their military is the one that says, no, this is actually a problem because some of the, like the really sensitive bases that they use, like Diego Garcia, that's uh, still a UK property in the Indian Ocean. Like with a small rise in sea level, Diego Garcia doesn't exist anymore. So their answer, if I understand right, is, so give us all the money so we can fortify and buy all the tanks and what have you. I mean, as you would <laughs> expect from yeah. a military organization, their answer is more fascism. I was hoping I was wrong, but. Yeah, you know. you know, it's always nice to be surprised. <laughs> Just not today. <laughs> it's like it's it's good to know that global environmentalism has like both sides represented. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think maybe we should talk, spend a little bit of time talking about some of the the effects uh, of climate change, um, like what we're already seeing, where where we are now. Now, and I think you know before we start this discussion, I think there are two really important things to to sort of stress and say at the beginning, um, like. 85% of global emissions broader is the Western industrialized world. So that's essentially Europe, uh, UK. Um, well, I mean, you know who we're talking about, the, the advanced economies and China. And that's like 85% of emissions. And China has a huge amount, not just because they are a growing welfare population. Um, it's because they are 
the West has essentially outsourced its entire manufacturing capability to China and Southeast Asia because it's really dirt cheap and they don't have so many environmental regulations as we do right now. Don't they have like, so, a, so, like a ton of coal, like just so much coal in China? Yeah, they have a huge amount. And it's, you know, it, 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 we can point the finger at China and we should, but the problem is they make a lot of the stuff that we tend to import. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, you know, the second thing is um, the global top 10% of the income distribution. And that, you know, e- includes everybody on this currently on this podcast and everybody essentially listening to this podcast. Um, the global top 10% produces 49% uh, of all emissions and the poorest 50%, which is essentially the global south, uh, produces only 10%. So it's not as if everybody's equally responsible. It's the highly advanced post-industrial economies that really take the cake and the higher you move up on the income distribution so like the top one percent uses a vast amount more than the top five percent which uses a vast amount more than the top ten percent but after that it drops off really quickly see we're finding our solutions here so (laughs) educate the top ten percent yeah we're all just gonna lay down and let everyone else uh, figure things out because they're probably smarter at it than us. That is my usual method. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think, you know, we're kind of looking at, you know, the problem and what's causing it. And you say kind of like in terms of the effects it's having, you know, it's not just creating these extreme weather conditions. um, It's also the effect it has on the world's population and how that impacts everyone. You know, we've got countries slowly kind of decaying and being destroyed by the climate, such yeah, as it? Bangladesh, I believe, is the one that's most under threat because it's basically all at sea level. Um, there are some islands that will be eradicated, some nations that won't exist in 50 years' time just because the sea level rises and there won't be any land left in them. I mean... Um, I mean, London. Yeah. London itself is a big question mark about how long that's going to last. I mean, the 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 Maldives are one of those. I mean, essentially, that's a series of coral mm-hmm. islands that can't build giant dikes and doesn't don't have the money to do it anyway. Um, and they're just. I mean, they've. I think two years ago they held their first uh, government meet. It was sort of publicity stuff, but they felt they had their first government meeting underwater. They were all dressed in scuba gear to sort of show that this is where the world is going now for them. So this is this you know this sort of stuff the, the 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 island communities and stuff. What you see is and and there's a really good uh, lecture by um, Naomi Klein, um, the Edward Said lecture on climate. It's called global warming and the othering of the South. I think we'll link it in the show description, um, where she talks all about this and essentially that the poorest people that will be hit first are really like marginal communities. There'll be native uh, peoples, there'll be First Nations, um, people who live closest to the shorelines, people who live most, who get most of their sustenance out of direct contact with nature will suffer the most and will suffer first. And essentially most of us, because we do live in the imperial core of the world, the hard consequences will hit us last. Um, even with that, though, the number of major cities, even in the richer parts of the world, that are on the coast is huge. Yeah. Like, I live in Bristol. I mean, like, and... uh, you just think of the Netherlands. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, that's my home country. I'm I'm developing gills. <laughs> with the uh, with the underwater government, that does mean that when we told Thangam Devonet to get into the sea, it was actually activism. Yeah, yeah, and Bristol will be in the sea in about thirty years' time. So we're just you know showing her the future. I think I'm, I live in a mountain, so I'm fine. But uh, London, oh. New York, are both pretty close to the water. Also, I think we need to apologise for uh, bringing up Fangam Debonair without the obligatory "Whoa, Fangam Debonair." So um, we do have <laughs> big regrets for that. Sorry, I'm new. I don't understand the culture here. <laughs> you you will learn these things in time. <laughs> well, I thought it. I just didn't say it. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of discussion right now as to whether or not we're already seeing what you could classify as climate refugees. Um, you know whether or not you would have to say these people are fleeing because of climate change. There's been a lot of discussion, for example, with um, Syria. That part of the reason the civil war broke out was that their um, marginal farmland had dried out five years in a row, and they'd moved all they'd all moved into the cities, and that didn't doesn't work for them essentially um and it's kind of difficult to say right now because most of the regions being really impacted by climate change also have bad governance they have civil war they have really long-term structural problems so it's difficult to say right now you know um the people crossing the mediterranean into europe they're climate refugees some of them maybe some of them are not so that's one of these really tricky things um like refugees come from all places and all for all kinds of reasons. But what we do know is that more of them will be coming and climate change makes all these problems like substantially worse. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the, the systems of climate change do seem to feed into each other. Like the more CO2 you put into the air, the more it goes into the sea, the more the sea gets acidic and things in the sea die and that makes more CO2. And it, it all it all gets worse faster, which is kind of the life we live now anyway but globally yeah so that's this is it's it, this is part of the tricky thing is that we have these cascade effects and and sort of self-reinforcing things that are vicious cycles so it's it, it as the ipcc and i think a lot of people have already said is it's not this is not a a linear decline into something worse uh, once we reach certain tipping points, like the permafrost just dethawing and releasing all its stored methane into the atmosphere, it will just take like a giant hockey stick curve downwards. And at that point, A leads to B to C leads into D on a much quicker level. And then, then you know, once the tipping points are reached, then we are in, in catastrophic trouble, essentially. Yeah, wonderful thing about methane is that it's, extremely more potent as a greenhouse gas than say carbon dioxide so even though if you look at like emissions charts it's not as much as carbon dioxide the effect is much more dramatic which gets exacerbated with things like agriculture output uh, livestock farming mm. if i've got my numbers right there's something like five times as much co2 released as methane but the methane is probably more of a problem Oh, yeah. wonderful. Even water itself is greenhouse gas, uh, water vapor. Again, with coming back to the feedback, feedback loops, with the warming um, climate, it means we have more water vapor in the atmosphere, which, again, just feeds back into the climate change, into the global warming loop. 
Yeah. So one of the things um, we've touched on methane already is one of the things, the serious things that's gonna that could occur quite quickly and that will have a real impact is um, the breakdown of our uh, food systems. And last, or no, this year, a couple of months ago, the IPCC came out with a big report on land use um, and climate change, which was essentially about the impact of food systems on um, climate change and the impact of climate change on food systems. Uh, Rob, can I just make a suggestion? Um, because I don't know, and there's probably listening people listening to the podcast don't know, but you just say who the IPCC are and what they do. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the IPCC is the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, it's essentially a, a huge collection of the most senior climate-related scientists in the broader sense, and they're all brought together under the auspices of the United Nations. And what they do is every time there's one of these major UN climate summits, um, like the one in New York right now, they put together new reports and new statistics, not just saying about this is where the earth is now and this is where it's going. But they could also come up with new ideas. Essentially, they are the the world's most authoritative body on everything to do with climate change when it comes to um, science. Unless you have a BBC, in which case one lone dude who does science in his basement, is uh, his voice is just as valid. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. So, yeah, um, to go back to the, the IPCC land use, and when we're talking land use, you really mainly have to think about um, agriculture, which really is the main thing. And, and, and in the broader sense, like you have to think about land as everything around you. So it's not just the food, but it's also um, river basins producing fresh water um, and, and, and pushing that through to the ocean. It's... Uh, you know, it's the starting point and end point of everything of biodiversity, everything from like earthworms to snow leopards to African elephants it requires ecosystems to stay alive. And it's also obviously a huge source of human well-being because it's it controls um, clean air, it controls uh, temperatures, all that kind of stuff. So this is the, the, the broadest uh, sense there is. And like this report came out a few months ago and like the, the, the impacts are really very troubling. And I work a lot with farmers and what they tell me, and this is already pretty much true, is like we see a lot of new diseases and new pests uh, that are being pushed out of their natural habitats and into new areas. So, for example, there's a new pest called Cyella fastidiosis, and that's like eating its way through Italy's olive groves um, and they have to like once it's detected they have to burn the entire olive grove down to the ground and the three farms around it to stop its spread but they haven't managed to do that yet as if we weren't already burning enough of the world yes we can spread the ball to the Amazon yeah. it's fine yeah I mean and, and what you get which you completely understand is like these can be very old farms and very old uh, olive groves is that like the local farmers who sometimes have been there for like 10, 20 generations, like they don't want to burn it down. So what they'll try to do is like they'll save some seeds or they'll save some trees or they try to keep something around. And because then, you know, it's not total eradication. The bug stays around and keeps leapfrogging northwards. So this is one of these things that's just like really screwed up. It's wonderful all these um, ways that, you know, we've not even heard about because, you know, we all know for big headlines, but turns out... Um, Humans are managing to make things shit in um, about a dozen more ways as well. So yay us! I will never doubt the ability for humans to make things more shit. <laughs> We're very good at it. 
if anybody's still like listening and hasn't tied a noose yet, we do promise we're going to talk about like good stuff and solutions yeah. as well. Shall we um, kind of think um, about moving on to that stuff very um, shortly? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so, yeah, essentially, you know, things that I think most people know by now is like our overconsumption of meat. And again, that's the, mostly the advanced economies of the North and China. Like that's a real problem. We're eating way too much meat, not just for our human health, but for the climate to handle. Um, and what, you know, th- there's a, there was a lot of, there's a lot of work that's been done by another, uh, it's the IPBS, which I can't remember what that stands for, about species loss that they think that, of the uh, roughly 1.8 million species that we've identified, about a million of them are in trouble. Um, yeah, so there's there's just a lot of, you know, the, the the age of climate breakdown is really already here. I think that's really the main thing we just kind of want people to take away from this discussion is that we're not talking about a problem that is in the future, it's not, you know, 20 years from now, it's not 10 years from now. This is something that is happening right now and it's something that needs to be dealt with right now and it's something that currently isn't being dealt with as much as it needs to be. Something that's been happening for the past 50 years. Yeah. yeah. I've always seen as the big problem of this sort of crisis. It's a very sort of slow apocalypse and people just aren't used to dealing with, with slow problems that don't seem to be immediate. They're like, oh, well, it's not... It's not urgent. Nothing's well. Actually, things are on fire, so maybe that should be a warning sign. But because they feel like it doesn't, it, it doesn't all collapse at once. They can kind of just put it off and put it off and put it off until we we pass that tipping point where it's way too fucked to ever fix again. So yeah, so it'd be good if people took it. A lot of people do take it seriously, but I think a lot more start need to start doing so because it is it is a problem. No, I think a lot. I mean, what you do see in terms of just pure opinion polling and like um, how people are voting is you do see in a lot of countries that this is now the number one and number two issue. And, you know, of course, with the younger people, the more serious it is. But like these are very serious, you know, I think now you are seeing a rise to the surface at a political level that wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, in terms of kind of solutions and kind of what we can do on the kind of political level in terms of kind of like government response and global response there are ways that we can change this economy if um one of you guys would like to talk me through it because um you understand more than i do yeah um yeah so for those of you who've tuned back in because you couldn't handle the depression this is where we start, start well, talking we about the, the, the hopeful part the, the, the optimistic part Woo! now yeah be happy now guys yeah. we made it Yay. i know i am pouring myself a third glass of whiskey now so you know i may start I'll, uh, cheers to that yeah but i think most people especially the you know the people listening to this podcast will know most of the basics so you know we have to I think it's really important that we that we remain optimistic that like we don't sort of go oh everything's fucked and you know there's these really weird things where people are like oh it's so bad I might as well buy a second car you know yeah the whole so black hole thing just, nothing matters anymore yeah so uh, I think anyone who says that was going to buy a second car anyway so it's not it's, that's not really too much of an issue <laughs> they just want to make yeah. themselves feel good about it yeah. Yeah, one of the things, I think the first, sort of in terms of solutions, the first thing I wanted to talk about, because we started this with like the problem of resource use, 
uh, and the increase of resource use. And the problem that we really have right now, which is what was already um, talked about a little bit, uh, is that it's very much production right now is a very linear process. Like we take shit out of the ground, we process it, we reprocess it, we bolt stuff together. Um, we sell it to consumers. The consumer uses it for two minutes, two years, whatever, and then essentially chucks it onto a landfill and then it just sits there um, and doesn't get reused wisely. And one of the big things that's going on right now, which is a slow process, but you are starting to see it in places, is something called circular economy, which is the idea of taking that linear process and saying, hang on, instead of taking stuff to a landfill, let's completely take it apart let's reuse you know um from an old fridge you know let's reuse the wiring let's reuse the metal panels let's recycle the plastic let's really reuse and recycle endlessly as much as we can these um the primary resources that we have and that's it's it's a really like i mean it, there's it's a very complicated world of of study and there's a lot of work being done on it right now um, if you want to learn more, I mean, really look up circular economy. Um, and what the other thing that we really have to do, which is part of that, is to say what, we are, what we're not doing right now in any of our production processes, not really, is we don't price in the negative outcomes. Um, so like uh, a really cheap mobile phone doesn't uh, account for the destruction it causes in terms of rare earth mining. It doesn't it take into account, you know, the child slave labor that's being used to sometimes ex extract these minerals. It doesn't take into account the industrial pollution in China or Vietnam. Um, so none of that is is reflected in the end price that you pay as a consumer. Uh, so that's that's one of the major aspects. The problem there, though, is that if phones cost more, people won't buy them and shareholders won't make any money. Oh, no, the shareholders. Won't somebody think of the shareholders? <laughs> I've got some from you. I do have a phone. So you can put the yeah, finger that, on me as well. That just automatically makes makes you a bad person. But it's, it's, it's really about sort of taking... Um, essentially stopping waste. It's essentially about taking all the waste that we have now, really pulling it apart and then recycling it endlessly over and over again, um, which would also mean that because these resources are already there and we don't have to pull more of them out of the ground, that we use a lot less CO2. So it's trying to, to, to um, decouple more resource use from more CO2 emissions. So that's it. It's a it's a really difficult concept, but it's I think it's super interesting. And it's if you think about you know even even on a personal level, you know, like don't throw your mobile phones in the bin. Take them to like a proper recycling center because there's so much stuff that we just like waste is such a problem, especially in our societies, and that's by design a lot of the time. Um, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of one vision of you know, what the economy could look like. Um, but we also have to think about how we're going to get there, um, which is where I believe the Paris Climate Agreement is kind of like one of the biggest focuses at the moment for making that journey. Um, unless you're Donald Trump, in which case it's kind of worth toilet paper. I guess. Well, it is mainly it's not worth a lot. <laughs> like, um, if I if I remember correctly, the Paris Climate Agreement is is they get on board or we start building guillotines. Is that how it works? 
That's how it should work. That, I've got my pen. I've got my weekend penciled in for that. So, <laughs> all right. Cool. agreement might not be great, and we should probably go into what that is in a moment. But it's also at the moment one of the only things we have, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. The, the problem with it is, is, is the the Paris Climate Agreement is essentially um, uh, a, a global statement of CO two reduction uh, in certain stages. With I think the idea is climate neutral by twenty fifty or twenty one hundred. I can't remember which one of the two. I it is. think it was fifty. Yeah, twenty fifty yeah. sounds right to me because the problem with that was we need to get this all done by twenty thirty if any of us are going to make it out of here. Yeah, there's a there's a delightful uh, again an IPCC report about cl- global warming to 1.5 degrees that came out last year, um, which talks a lot about the need for 2030. Uh, so the basic mechanism of the Paris Climate Agreement is that we've agreed these very big goals, so the climate neutral by 2050. Um, it, there's also parts a bit about saving biodiversity, all that like all the good stuff that you want. Um, and the other important thing that was never really established before uh, Paris, um, I think, was that it established baselines. So it said, okay, if we say climate neutral or if we say less emissions, like, w- what's our starting point? And we all agreed, I think, that that 1991, sort of the emissions in 1991, uh, that's the zero point. So that's, uh, you know, anything above that, we have to certainly turn back. Even 1991, the the, um, the emissions already from the past about 60 years or even 100 years is way higher than uh, since the probably a few million years. And the, that previous time was at the previous mass extinction event. Uh, I hate to be to be picky, but as an agreement, it just sounds like we all we all sort of agreed to do this thing. What what if what if some of us didn't do it? What actually happens then? Absolutely nothing. Uh, uh, that's, okay, that's, that's I, I see the, the floor in this problem. plan already. <laughs> yeah, that's the main problem. Uh, that's why Copenhagen failed and that's why Paris did succeed, is essentially um, there is a thing called a ratchet mechanism where every year all countries have to report their progress and their progress has to be better than the year before, which is called the ratchet mechanism. So every time it just moves up a gear. The problem is if you don't do anything, there is no penalty attached. Well, aside from the climate disaster bit of it, but again, it's that's the usually the big problem with international politics is any kind of lasting penance is very difficult to do. Yeah, and it, for uh, for something like this to work, I mean, how many officially recognized? It's like two hundred six, two hundred seven countries at the UN right now officially recognized. Um, for all of them to agree, like imagine trying to get. 206 even of your friends let's say well friends acquaintances extended family members you know something like let's that let's go with enemies <laughs> yeah <laughs> twitter followers fine fellow online lefties and and like see if you can get them to agree to anything and the, what's what happens is is that like the only thing the only stuff you can really agree on is the really baseline stuff it's like you know uh, the 206 Twitter followers here assembled agreed that um, grass is green and climate change is bad. Like that's the kind of stuff that you can agree on and that everybody puts their signature to. So if, if the government's not going to be much help or at least maybe just elect better governments, was that be 
that be a start at least? Um, how about yeah, straws? A... How about we get rid of straws instead? <laughs> okay, or we could do straws. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or we get more Trump branded straws because that's now a thing because they're selling them through their website. They've more, more like $200,000 or something selling plastic straws to the world to trigger the environmentalists. Didn't someone make a cake on like Fox News or something with straws in it? To the, the trigger cake or some yes. crap like that? Well, when you think about it, if you spend all your money on straws, you can't spend it on anything else. So it, it does kind of cancel out. I mean, it probably takes a lot to make those straws, though. Like, you know, the straw industry, big pollution, I'm sure. Yeah. And it, it, and, and I've, I've, I actually, I was, when was it, two years ago, I was at the one in Bonn, the climate, uh, big UN climate forum. I was there for a, for a workshop thing. And the problem is that it's not just the countries who are there. There's a lot of industry that's there. There's a lot of NGOs that are there. So that sort of balance each other out. But essentially what you see is a lot of people who are at least backed by organizations that can afford to send you to these conferences. And there's a lot of just like standing around, chatting to each other, agreeing with each other. And like, it's really difficult to, to, to see from that sort of huge macro level to anything actually changing on the ground. And, and, we can talk endlessly, you know, oh, climate change is bad, climate change is bad. And that's one of the things that just tends to happen is we've just institutionalized having more discussion instead of doing much. So basically, global bureaucracy is bureaucratic. Who would have thought it? Well, far me if you suggest some practices, but what can we do then to actually help out with this problem? So um, I, a couple of things that people talk about, and I think it would be good to touch on even though they're not necessarily correct, are, you know, personal responsibility. You know, we, we've mentioned light bulbs, we've mentioned straws. Um, there's a big debate going on, which I wanted to ask you uh, guys about in terms of, you know, veganism, if we all stop eating, eating meat, is that going to save everything? It couldn't It'll help, but it wouldn't be enough. I mean, people need to do things from a level, from a ground level, but again, Things need to change from the top-down perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, like veganism alone is is not going to save the world, and like getting rid of animal production in in total is not like that's not even something that you want necessarily uh, speaking. But like the amount of meat we consume right now is insane, and like you know. Um, what's it called? Flexitarianism, where it's like you do five days without meat and two days with, and then the stuff you do buy is like really high quality. That's really good. Even the kinds of meat as well, because c- compared, I mean, beef and lamb, each of those is, com- has more destructive than any of the other meats, probably all the other meats combined, pork, chicken, fish. Yeah, for sure. Um, essentially like and and then there's also the balance of animal welfare um and efficient production like the most if most climate friendly production is huge industrial closed shops where pigs never see the light of day um where all their emissions are taken care of and processed internally and where they you know that that's the most efficient way but that's maybe not as happy for the animals i've got high hopes for the uh, lab grown meat which supposedly is going to hopefully be commercial within the next couple of years. The problem mm. with most of these things is that all of them, there's still downsides you've got to consider. Even something like plastic straws, 
some people need to use straws. If you're in a wheelchair or whatever, you may need a straw. You can't just ban them entirely. Yeah. You've got to. I mean, that's why straws were created no, exactly. for disabled people. And you need to. Any answer to climate change has got to, you know, be aware and understanding of minorities. You've got to consider everyone. Yeah. 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 But to get back to like the personal responsibility thing, like there are things you should like definitely do. Um, uh, you know, as best as you can, as much as your local community offers it, like you have to recycle everything you can. Like you have to really think about your own transport. You know, is there an alternative? Is there public transport available? Um, you know, can you carpool? Can you share things? And it's, you know, consumption. It's not just about food, but like how many single use plastics do you have? You know, like the, the amount of stuff you have. Can you recycle? Can you buy secondhand? Like that kind of stuff. Like it's not enough um, because we need global and local institutions. We need corporations to massively change essentially. But that doesn't mean like you can't do anything responsibly yourself. If you want to, you know, make changes because that makes you feel good about the life you're living, then absolutely go and do those things. But don't be under any kind of illusion. But doing that alone is going to solve the problem. Because what we really need and what we're really looking for is larger political shifts on this area. Yeah, systemic structural solutions. Um, Yeah, um, to bring up Greta Thunberg again, that was one thing. She was uh, on The Daily Show um, with Trevor Noah um, and made that exact point. And I think... That really is the key thing that everyone needs to understand is that we've got to work together and ask for more and expect more. I also just I also just really enjoy kids yelling at adults, so <laughs> I hope she, she keeps it up. <laughs> I, I'm sure she will. So I mean, so is 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 I mean, talking of personal responsibilities, is activism is that the way to go? Is the way you know we had massive climate demonstrations very recently this week and last week. You know, global millions of people on the move. Like, uh, should we consider going to protests? How, how does climate activism, you know, how, how does that I work? Mean, like, is that what we should be I'd, doing? I'd say the answer is yes, for starters. Um, but there's a lot of various ways you could go with it. And that's something that you probably should think about before you get involved. Um, and this is the bit where we talk about Extinction Rebellion, who um, I imagine a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, you can't really talk about climate activism and ignore them. Um, Matty, I know that you um, went to a talk where one of the XR, was it organisers, was um, giving a speech or something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I even got reminded during that talk of that one incident where... Remember the protesters in Parliament? Where um, they glued themselves to the... I'm going to just, just remember Ed Miliband's uh, expression. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, parliamentary but, bats. Yeah. you got to love them. Was that the ones who basically glued their backsides to the glass? Yep, their buttocks <laughs> facing the commons. I remember that. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I think mean, that's really an important thing to say. 
because um, XR come in for a lot of criticism, and I'm sure that we're about to give them a lot of criticism. But we, I've got some criticisms. Yes, so do I. Um, but I think it's also important to give them a fair shout because there's a lot of things that they have done really well. Um, they've managed to kind of push the climate agenda to the forefront in a way that no other protest group has, uh, despite you know, protest groups being um, on this subject for the last 20, 40 yeah, they're years. Making, they're making things like civil disobedience um, normalised again in people's yeah. minds. And I think if we're going to get anywhere with climate change, that's super important that people start recognising that as, you know, your duty as a good person to be, to, to do civil disobedience and to like to be on the front line. And they're also getting a lot of engagement from people. They get a big following. They get people who wouldn't normally be involved in protesting in civil disobedience. They are reaching a new demographic, which, you know, that is a really good thing um, to introduce more people into, you know, political activism. Um, so there's definitely some positives there. Um, but what I they do with those people... But. Yes, um, yes. Um, so I've got a lot of criticisms, but you know, fee- please feel free to jump in as we go along. The getting a lot of people on side also leads into my major issue with them is that they, the reason they get a lot of people on side is they they do take a very soft stance on almost everything. They're very keen on talking about how the environment needs to be saved, but they're very get gun shy when it comes to actual solutions of how to do that they uh they don't like to talk about capitalism they don't like to talk about any one party being a block or 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 in the way they don't like to pick any sort of villains or any companies to target they just they want they want something done about it but they don't really want to say what it is yeah they want to speak to a manager and they've been very firm about this and um you know they are expecting something to be done at some point in the future hopefully quite soon um that's literally what the action is. They so they have three object, three demands. I mean, the first demand is the government must tell the truth by declaring a climate ecological emergency, working with other institutions, communicate the urgency for change. That's fair enough. That's easy to do. You can easily ah, say something. Okay. Yes, reasonable. The reasonable second demand is to act now to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by twenty twenty five. Okay, that's a demand. But How are no you going to do that? Yes. Yeah. Which brings us to the third demand, which is the government must create and be led by National Citizens Assembly on Climate and Ecological Justice. That's where it kind of where I kind of lost the plot, or at least it loses the plot to me. Where they're just basically pawning it off without any offering any concrete yeah. uh, solutions. And I think I can tell you why. It's because they brand themselves as an apolitical organisation to pull together people from all disparate political views. It means that by that very nature, they cannot address the root cause of climate change because the root cause is capitalism. And if you are talking to people who love capitalism but hate climate change, you don't want to tell them that they're the ones causing the problem. It's it's very much a sort of well people just need to get their heads together and saw it out kind of approach to politics, which is usually infuriating and doesn't really achieve much. Indeed, indeed. Um, 
But there's also that is a you know fantastic criticism, but that's not the only one. There's um others that I have. I mean, I think it's well known that one of their main policies is to um get people arrested, um just flood the criminal justice system until it's basically inoperable. Um, can anybody see any problems with that off the bat? There's always more room in prison because you can pack people in like sardines. <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly possible. Um, but, and I think that does kind of... If all your followers are in prison, you've got no one left to protest. Also very true. Also, Are they really friendly with the cops, though? Like, I, that seems to go against the uh, the other thing is, which they're actually like really sort of polite to the police. Yeah, um, I mean, they did recently write letters to the police before a protest, um, asking them to understand why they were protesting and put their names on it, so the police would know exactly who was protesting. Um, they also have their own XR Cops Facebook group, so that... Yeah, what? so it's really great. Oh, yeah. It's really that can't be innova- real. No, what? they do. It's really innovative protesting because they don't need undercover cops to come in and find out what's going on. Because the cops can just kind of waltz in and ask for questions and get it all straight up. It's really quite ingenious when you think about it. Um, just as long as you are not a protester, because it's appalling. I mean, maybe they just assume that as a as a sort of not on the right group they were going to get infiltrated by cops anyways they might as well know who they are um i mean yeah but then they also say that the cops are their allies and that they just really hope the cops understand pretty pretty please don't be mad at us which is which is a really naive start to take considering the uk's history of the police involvement in uh environmental or environmental groups any protest on the planet and uh, it's nothing great. I mean, it's, it, it it sounds to me like this is sort of it sounds like a very sort of upper middle class attitude of the police are our friends and they are here to protect us and if we just play nicely with them they'll let us like do nice things and like that's just a really really fundamental misunderstanding of the role of police in modern society. Yeah. I mean that's basically the problem. They are your liberal aunt's first protest group. Um so she's never been engaged with politics before and she doesn't really know how things work and XR refused to listen to experienced protesters um, about how to handle things. So they kind of blunder in and they do make a lot of mistakes. Um, they're also really bad about protester rights. Um, for example, they used to be a kind of protester rights law group called Green and Black Cross, who initially worked with XR, but then they kind of dropped them and washed their hands of them for a number of reasons, um, including XR's independent observers who were there to kind of watch and just make sure that everything goes down peacefully and the cops don't get aggy and protesters don't get aggy, um, but they're independent. They got their independent observers to be dressed up in XR logos and talking about XR and you can probably see the problem with that. That doesn't sound very independent. No. Um, And the further problem with that is if something kicks off and it goes to law and you are suddenly asking your independent observer if uh, a protester broke the law, 
Um, if you're independent protesters being decked out in XR gear and is not an independent, that evidence isn't really going to fly in court. So you're actively damaging your own protester rights. So maybe well-meaning people who aren't doing it very well. It was the best way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's not to say to you know anybody listening, don't get involved with them, you know, stay away from them. It's just when you are with these guys, be careful and like, you know, don't just, you know, as with any normal situation, don't just take what you are told as gospel. I mean, except for this podcast, <laughs> naturally, because this is oh, the true truth. Of all truth. Um, it's nothing but unvarnished truth. But I do find it genuinely like really uh, heartening that like, this is happening more and more and on such a like global scale, um, you know, uh, and, and we talked a bit about Greta Thunberg already, like um, the youth, you know, students, uh, primary school, secondary school, uh, universities really going on strike. I mean, I don't know how it was where you guys live, but here in Brussels, there were like 20,000 kids uh, and grandparents. And like, uh, it was really... Um, like it was really good, and and it really gave me hope for that that the idea of change is possible. Um, but my always my worry is with these types of things is that people march and then go home. Uh, like if you march along a predefined route and you announce everything beforehand, and then you go home at the agreed upon hour. Like politicians, don't get me wrong. Like politicians will will certainly like take you into account and listen to you, but like. The real enforcement form and the real action is is not one afternoon. It's it's months and years and 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 really pushing things. Again, it's a good way of getting people involved, isn't it? When it comes to like mass protests and mass mobilization of students, it does. I sort of got into politics at the, at the Iraq war time, and we had mass mobilization of students, and we had a lot of protests. And in the end, it didn't it didn't work out. So it's it's not enough by itself, but it it can at least have an effect. Yeah, it needs to be connected to a larger sort of. To, it needs to be connected to a real political project, um, and 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 if need be, you know, which is where Extinction Rebellion is. I think doing a good thing is is it at some point it will need to engage in civil disobedience. It will need to engage in, you know, practices that may not look good on the evening news. It will. It will have to do, you know, if you, if you look at something like really groundbreaking, like the the American civil rights movement or the, the uh, struggle for independence in India, you know, that it, it wasn't just politely asking for something; it was demanding it and pushing on it and really doing it in a different yeah. way. I, I believe they call that diversification of tactics. Um, we should all probably just make here that clear that this podcast does not condone civil disobedience in any way. Everyone, please behave. Yes, behave. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also... I didn't realise we did that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to our friends in the home office, we are entirely harmless and lovely. Oh, and I understand. Like, okay, yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. Be, be good. Um, yes. Um, but also, I did want to give a shout out because you know, we've mentioned XR. We have mentioned um, the youth strikes, which are fantastic, but I'm not a youth and most of our listeners are probably not youths, um, but may still want to get involved with climate change in a kind of more 
left-wing, anti-capitalist kind of way, the Nets are. Um, there is an organisation called Earth Strike that is a global movement to confront climate change. Um, they're demanding zero carbon emissions by 2030, which, you know, was the watchword. Um, they're also looking to remove restrictive laws on trade unions so that we can, you know, move to more green industries. Um, can they are a decentralised organisation that operates locally around the UK and I believe, you know, other countries as well, if you're not a local listener. Um, so if you would like to get involved, that is a fantastic way um, to get started and I'll get the website for them linked in show notes. So, yeah, please do check that out. Yeah. Um, and then I think let's let's uh, let's move a bit forward and then towards an ending as well, because otherwise we're going to do one of our interminable episodes as usual. Um, we can't. I think we should leave uh, this and have the last bit of discussion on the Green New Deal, which is you know that's the big buzzword right now. Um, you know it's been around in various shapes and forms. I think it was really given a lot of speed and attention at first by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who launched it in the US. I think last yeah, year. Yeah, that's right. Um, to tie back to activism, I feel like this did come out of a lot of the activism as, as a kind of way to address it. And it's, it, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a lot good of stuff, groups so. that this is what we're asking for. This is kind of like the demand is for Green New Deal. Yeah, this this is the list of, of demands. And, and so it's... Um, it's in Europe now as well. Like the a Green New Deal for Europe is one of the three new key items of the next European Commission. Uh, we'll do an EU episode some other time, but like it's really a top line item, and it was just passed by the Labour conference as well. So there's a giveaway for when we're yeah. recording this. Um, it may be that you know it, lots more has happened since then. Um, in which case we'll probably record a little bit extra, but that's kind of where we are. Um, but in terms of a Green New Deal, uh, what is it? Um, what are we asking for? No, I think the, the the first thing to say is like there are a few more, there are a few core principles behind all okay. these things. Um, the first thing is that the Green New Deal is not about lowering or reducing the quality of life of anybody, especially not like the poorest and most vulnerable in any society. So it's not about demanding that people, you know, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop taking airplanes. It's it's about reshaping the world itself. The second core. The second core principle, which I think like that's hugely important because right now a lot of climate change stuff is framed very negatively. It's, uh, it know. seems kind of a lot of the same attacks that socialism does, that it, that it wants everybody to go back to like scraping together to get to bread. It's not That's not the idea behind it. But they'll rotate no, the bins exactly. away. Um, well, the second thing is like, this can't be a movement just of government or just of civil society or activists or like uh, a business insofar as we have one under jam socialism but like uh it has to be all sectors have to be involved and um it has and that that's really crucial like you, you can't wait for government to do things you can't wait for extinction rebellion to sort it for you it has to be everybody together uh and the third thing is it like it you can't underestimate the scale of what a program like the Green New Deal means it means really like transforming the whole of society, like not just the energy sector or the transport sector or the agricultural sector. Um, it's it's really about everything, and everything has to plug together, and the whole thing will fall apart if we don't bring everybody with us. Well, that all sounds like a good start. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can get on board with that. 
and like the benefits, like the benefits, and this is also I think really important, especially now when you know the economy is not doing very well and hasn't essentially functioned at all very well since two thousand eight. Is like there are huge benefits. Like there are apart from you know lowering emissions and you know not cooking the planet <laughs> and let's leave some animals alive and you know that As kind if of that stuff. Wasn't enough. Like there are enormous benefits. Yeah, I think that's what um, Jeremy Corbyn said at conference was that it's you know it's an opportunity, and that's really how we've got to see it is that you know this um, wave of social change that is kind of bubbling up in the younger generations is really focused around this, and it can all be tied together. It's it's safe to say we're all keen on on public investment too, and there hasn't been a lot of it in the country recently. The Green New Deal is mainly focused on on a, a ridiculous amount of public investment to sort of not only dig ourselves out of this hole, but also give people jobs, uh, create new houses, renewable energy, just everything that we we do need if we're going to keep having a future on this planet. And it's all got to be built by people, so that will be certainly useful. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is really sort of an important part where I think, which is sometimes where my criticism of like the climate protest movement is and like the the people who talk about it is like you really need to appeal to people's like material interest. You know, you can't just say it. this is not right, that is not right. Like you have to show them like a, a really positive path forward and, you know, you have to offer people hope. And, and 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 a positive vision of society. I mean, ma- making making renewable energy will be a pain in the dick, but once we've done it, it will mean very cheap <laughs> energy bills. So that's that's good because gas costs a fucking fortune. Yeah. <laughs> it all seems yeah. to be framed in a this is how we can improve the climate situation and still make things better for us as well, which should appeal to you know pretty much everyone really. Do like some decadence? Yeah, I mean, so like let's 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 take something concrete. Like um, the housing stock in the UK is very old. A lot of it's from the 1950s, 1970s, sometimes even older. Uh, you know, they are single pane, uh, shitty houses with bad insulation. That you know, that's not good for anyone who lives in them either, because it means more drafts. It means you're spending more on bills. Um, you know, there's maybe mold situations, that kind of stuff. Like, imagine how many people we could lift out of poverty, how many jobs we could create if there was a national, like, retrofitting agenda where we took the UK's housing stock and made it much more uh, energy efficient. Like, imagine the, you know, the amount of jobs you could create in every single town. You'd give loads of jobs, you'd make everybody's house better, everybody's bills would go down, you know, everybody wins. Yeah, I mean, and, and building solar panels, um, wind farms, uh, you know, even nature restoration projects. There's really cool stuff that was done in like the 1930s uh, in the US under the Civil Conservation Corps, but like they built the big national parks and they built all these beautiful paths and, and huts and like all these really lovely things. Like this is this is really cool. Like this is really positive and like genuinely amazing. And I yeah, think and this, it, is the way this is the way we should talk about. In it. Wales, there's this thing called the uh, the tidal reservoir that they keep cancelling and uncancelling, which is is just a, yeah. a giant. It, it would be a really cool project, a giant tidal generator which fills up every time the tide comes in and goes out. And so once you've got it all working, it's almost no effort to make power. And it's, it, but it just requires so much money to get started that they're scared of doing it because you know, well, I won't get an immediate return. Why should we bother? It's it, yeah. it needs forward thinking to get these things built, but it's definitely worth it when we actually manage to do it. 
and and it will only be the public sector that builds this kind of stuff as well. Like we have to be able no to pri- no private contract is going to touch this because the returns don't come anywhere near mm-hmm. close enough. These are these are things for the future, not for tomorrow. So basically, there's only one tree we need to save the environment, and that is the magic money tree. Yes, bring me the magic money tree. <laughs> yeah, and just ah, <laughs> we we won't date this episode too much, but you know, if you if you read it all the like the financial bits of the papers, if you see like the amount of money that's being put into idiotic, like Silicon Valley and IPOs that like genuinely want to put $2,200 treadmills and $4,000 US dollar, um, uh, home exercise bikes with a little <laughs> screen so you can do like spinning classes. Like there is, there is an insane amount of money. You know, we pumped 2 trillion euros, yens, dollars, whatever into the global money supply to keep modern capitalism going so like the people who say oh what about the money they're full it's of shit it's alright mate Elon Musk is going to make electric cars that explode so we're fine and <laughs> <laughs> crash into ambulances <laughs> ambulances and fire trucks and fire trucks yeah. oh, oh he's such a twat and the trucks that decapitate the drivers and then call you a pedo but like uh, I yes. won't even say I will even say for like, I mean, much as I loathe and despise everything to do with Elon Musk, you know, he did single hand, almost single handedly, you know, at least in the public mind, recreate and make positive the idea of electric cars. So like, yes, he's a piece of shit, but, you know. Just proves even bad people can do good things by accident. (laughs) Is your hot hot take for today, Elon Musk, secretly good. <laughs> uh, not too, not too many hot takes that will harm the uh, planet's atmosphere. So let's be careful. All right, okay. Yeah. L- lukewarm takes only. All right. So shall we have a quick look at what the Labour Green New Deal actually said when it was passed at conference? Because I had a quick look uh, through the documents. Yeah, let's see how Labour's going to tackle it. All right. So the first thing they say, which is the big promise, was also in all the papers, is net zero carbon emissions by 2030 and a phasing out of all fossil fuel use. Yeah, sorry. Ambitious. That's hugely ambitious, but like, how cool is that? Yeah, it's the kind of target we need to see. It's aggressive, but yeah, if they can get it done. Yeah. And like, even if they didn't get done, what's also, I think, super important is like, now is the time to set like insanely ambitious yeah. goals and maybe like get halfway that's to better. them than shit, set like shitty achievable yeah, goals. That's kind of any business strategy is you push your targets high because it's better to fail at a high target than to succeed at a crap one. But, yeah, standard business. Yeah. Second one is to ban fracking. Good news for anyone who likes to be able to drink water. <laughs> well, not live in places, not experience earthquakes. Not to have ground that catches fire. Or oh, the water right, catches so fire. Pro- I think we're all happy right, with so that. So we're idea. all pro-fracking, I think, right? Like, this is the uh, third thing mean- we don't like. Fracking's no, cool. No, we're, we're definitely anti-fracking. No, the <laughs> fracking replaces using explosives to dig out of the ground, and I'm definitely against that, because explosives sound cooler than water. <laughs> Can't drink explosives, Frank. I mean, Get back could, to blowing up the earth. Would it be good? There are liquid explosives. I wouldn't recommend drinking. Them. <laughs> yeah, but how cool of a way to die? Well, True. We could, but thanks, True. Brussels won't let us drink our explosives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I have a giant stockpile in my apartment, and you're not getting any. <laughs> uh, what else we got? What else is on there? Uh, the 
take all energy systems into public Nothing ownership alive. and do a massive investment Nationalize. in renewable energy. <laughs> Nationalize it. Point at it. Nationalize it. Done. <laughs> Jobs are good, mate. <laughs> and also arm John McDonald. <laughs> Um, I'm guessing that is that going to be every kind of energy? Is that is that going to be nuclear, coal, and uh, I guess that they're planning to phase it all out. It doesn't really work with coal, but that would yeah. be that would that would be how they do it because the public private companies aren't going to do it themselves. So if we if we slowly nationalize all the energy systems, then phasing out for fossil uses is, is something we can actually achieve. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the, I think this is I mean you'll run into all kinds of international problems in terms of you know trade and that kind of stuff but i think like again let's set super high goals and that's you know really cool could we nationalize more things yes uh we can also nationalize public transport and electrify it yes and like <laughs> re-establish all those bus routes that were cancelled. yes as someone in wales once again electrified rail would be really nice because they haven't oh, they oh. haven't done that for a long time oh i was gobsmacked when it came to this country and found that large, major rail arterial routes weren't electrified. Oh, man. London to Cardiff only got electrified this year. Um, Yeah, and if you go past Cardiff, you're done. You get out and push. (laughs) Um, I think very quickly, because we are definitely going to go over 90 minutes again at this rate, uh, what else have we got on there? Um, Building, yeah, local community action and investment, super good as well. Like, it can't be nationally led. This needs to be communities first it's really cool uh climate zero housing yeah. we talked about which is really cool which is really important um and finally support for developing country uh, countries and climate refugees yeah that last point i'm a big yeah. fan of because that's um providing any supposed green tech that we come against that the uk comes up with providing that tech free to the global south that's fantastic so it's it does away makes does away imperial it's not like it's not um putting them further into debt it all sounds pretty good to me yeah um lovely stuff um so thank you very much i've learned a lot definitely um before we wrap things up we do want to finish things with a little bit of light-hearted fun um yes please please (laughs) get 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 into my hyperloop ascend to my uh mountain lair you see i have heard all you have said and i've come with some alternate suggestions of how we could save the climate there's a a thing called geoengineering that will mean we won't have to do any of this work at all and the climate will just fix itself i have a question excellent how much of this is invented by capitalism um, all, all, everything you see here is in cast your eyes upon all you survey. All here is capitalism. Oh, so that's fantastic. We're we're saved, lads, without a doubt. Uh, I've got, a, I've actually got a, a bit of a puzzler for you. I have um, gathered together some cool, some real ideas of how the energy companies and uh, particularly Exxon in particular plan to fix climate change, and also mix them in with some crazy supervillain shit from TV. Is this uh, and- actual stuff that is been on TV, or did you just invent it? No, the, the, these will either be actual things on TV or actual things from the news that they okay, say might okay. fix climate change. Okay. And it's, it's going to be your task to say if this is if this is supervillain shit or if this is geoengineering. So it's not as catchy as comment or commentariat, <laughs> but I, I dig it. Yeah. Well, I tried comment commentariat, but they're actually cowards and won't won't deny climate change <laughs> enough to make it interesting. So you, you get this yeah. instead. Oh yeah, let's do it. All right, hit me. All right, okay. So for number one, uh, a giant disc built on a mountain that will block out the sun and help cool the earth. Is it that Austin Powers? <laughs> no, I know what this is. That sounds super villain to me. 
That's definitely geoengineering. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, it's super villain. I remember what this is. Yeah, as, yeah, this is, as, this, is the super, this is the super. Villain. I imagine, as as you've guessed, this is this is from The Simpsons. So this is excellent. Uh, Montgomery's yes. point of blanket uh, Springfield in darkness. However, it is also geoengineering. What? No. Wait, what? No. What? Everyone's a winner. What? No. Sort of. There are these things called solar parasols where they plan to launch rockets into the space, which will create these giant silver um, silver disks that will reflect the sun back out into space and therefore not cool the Earth. What? Uh, there's two problems with this. Um, one, it doesn't oh, work. Like, they don't have the technology for it. That's a bit of an issue. <laughs> but also, it will cause eclipses to happen all throughout the day, constantly, at what? random, everywhere across what? the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and you know, we totally That's gonna not like gonna mess the- up with the natural you know, animal uh Sorry, cycles. the bats will love it. It'll be fine. It'll be it'll be interesting making driving going to work when you <laughs> it could come dark at any time. Isn't that also a James Bond super weapon? Uh that might be a James Bond super weapon. But <laughs> wait, okay. Alright, I'll try again. So, how about (laughs) stealing all the ice from the Arctic ice sheet and taking it down to the hot bits of the ocean and dropping it in so that it'll cool down? (laughs) What? What? I'm sorry. This is is geoengineering. This This is is almost the thing from Futurama. It's all going to be both. Well, it's geoengineering. Futurama took it from space, so that doesn't count. This is um. <laughs> I'm gonna this say is... geoengineering because I think supervillains on TV would be written to be smarter than that. It it is, and also would keep the ice with themselves. It is geoengineering, yes. Um, a lot of people oh. have sort of, sort of seen that as the ice sheets melt, they create ice cubes that float about. Well, ice cubes, sorry, icebergs that float about and cool the cool the sea. <laughs> so they thought, well, if we just. If we just broke the Arctic ice sheet up and kind of pushed it about a bit, it would cool the sea a lot quicker. Yeah, but it's um, not like we need it or anything. Okay. Uh, Real-life supervillain uh, um, Ab- Abdullah Ashelshi from Saudi Arabia actually plans to bring an iceberg down, um, oh but I, he, he plans to do it. To, he plans to do it to get water for Saudi Arabia. But it, they also speak about the cooling effects it would have. If if you ever hear of. Wait, they want to drag like a giant ice cube into the Gulf of Oman. Yes, that that there's a plan. They're gonna. I think they're gonna do that next year, actually. <laughs> oh, instead, instead, they drag ice God. cube from rapper and get water out of him. It might it be. It might be more sensible because people have tried to move icebergs quite often and it's always ended in horrible disaster and <laughs> there's no there's no real indication that this one will be any better. So I would love to see a iceberg dragged into the. Uh, that shipping lane between Northeast Africa and Saudi Arabia. There is also what a slight... Could possibly go wrong? There's a slight <laughs> second problem with this plan, where um, the amount of ice you... Is, no, that can't yeah. be. That can't be the, the amount of ice you need to do this would be the entire Arctic ice sheet every year. Um, we can only... <laughs> We can only really do that once. There is only, there is only one Arctic ice sheet, unfortunately. Oh, it happens then. You drink at the end of winter. Then the next year, there'll be another one from summer. So through winter. That's how these things work, right? All right I've, got, I've got more. So it says, all right, we, we will fix this. Uh, how about a uh, giant conveyor belt under the sea? What? Sorry, I need more detail here. Conveyor belt to where? What is it carrying? Wait, do, do- as, I'm, as, it doesn't this already exist naturally on these like the like the Gulf flows? It's like the stuff that that, that like keeps the oceans doing what it does. Uh, so do you believe this is real or supervillain? Then because I feel you're getting close. Sorry, what is what are the what's the what is the, tr- 
What did you say it was? Uh, a giant conveyor belt underneath the sea, yeah, which well, would bring like cold cold water down from Antarctica to cool us all down. Ah. Uh, uh, I'm going to say geoengineering. I'm going to say supervillain. But why? Why would a supervillain put no, I'm going to say geoengineering as well. What would he achieve? I'm- just to, <laughs> just to round it up, I'm going to say supervillain. It is actually. This is, this is, this actually is Genji engineering. The um. <laughs> this is straying onto airplane on a treadmill territory. I, I, I did cheat a bit. There is a thing called the Global Ocean Conveyor Belt, which is a water current that um that goes around the Earth from Greenland to South Africa and Australia and back, which uh, brings cold water. So they thought, well, if we could just speed that up a bit. Um, it would actually help, like, cool the Earth down um, by maybe blocking all the water from the North Atlantic to the Arctic, or maybe making a, a giant how, dam in the Bering Strait. How do you push? How do you push like trillions and trillions and trillions of gallons of salt water from one end of the planet to the other without, like, using all the energy <laughs> known to humanity? Well, if, they, they found that if you dam the Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska, which might be quite difficult. Um, that would actually that would divert all the uh, all the water around into the Atlantic and speed it up, um, with the slight downside that the entire of Europe would freeze to death. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Probably yeah. for the best. It's not all bad. Yeah. This is that. This is actually probably the most feasible idea. Oh no, actually no. It's the second most feasible idea I've got here. So. Jeez. All right. Give give us one more, and then we'll round it off because we're running. Okay, I'm, I'm going to skip the boring one then, and we'll go straight to uh, blanking the entire of Earth in a nuclear winter. Geoengineering. Geoengineering. <laughs> Geoengineering. What haven't they suggested solving with nuclear weapons? Well, I, I did cheat. I mean, this is actually both. This is the uh, this is the plot to the Matrix. <laughs> Um, but it is also geoengineering. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. You can't threaten all of humanity with extinction if humanity's already dead. So it's quite brilliant. Yeah, this, <sighs> this, the plan for this one is if they release enough soot into the atmosphere, um, global warming will reach a point where it stops being global warming because you've, re- you've gone past the tipping point where the, sun, the heat's getting trapped in and now you're trapping the sun back out. <laughs> Um, we just make it more hot. <laughs> we make it more hot than the sun, and it'll be fine. Don't we just summarize this as Venus? But how how does how does photosynthesis happen without the oh, sun? I see. What are we going to? You eat? have you have spotted the floor in this plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can put the plants in space. It's not actually a real nuclear winter, so there's it's at least it's not radioactive, which is probably the only good thing you can say for this plan. <laughs> But it does, I have seen it come up in news articles now and then. So even this, like, they're so desperate for a solution, which doesn't involve doing anything, that even a nuclear winter is, is like an, an idea. <laughs> I saw a great headline today from The Guardian saying, will, will, will a nuclear explosion help fix global warming? <laughs> in the Guardian. Technically, yes, in the long run. <laughs> If you have enough of them. The Huffington Post, sorry, not The Guardian. The Guardian's too highbrow for that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if you put the nuclear explosion in the right heavy industrial area, maybe. The, I think the conclusion came down to yes, but it's probably not worth the downsides. <laughs> the but we, we've got that in our back pocket just in case other plans don't work. <laughs> 
Yeah, in case we don't have circular economy or a Green New Deal or like a real, you know, all jam socialism, we can always shoot nukes in. This we is can, we can th- we, Donald we Trump. Can fix the- this is Donald Trump. This is him. This is shooting nukes at hurricanes. To be fair, yes, that is a real solution to the hurricanes that has been has has been suggested. If we fix our climate apocalypse with a different kind of apocalypse, we just need another one to fix <laughs> that, and we can just keep that going for. I think we can keep that going forever. It'd be fine. Isn't we can. That we can a little ones. lady who swallowed a fly. Well, yeah, except except swallowed the entire Earth climate and then swallowed a nuke. <laughs> Invented there was an old lady who swallowed a nuke. I don't know why she swallowed a nuke. <laughs> then went on question time. <laughs> but she was secretly a Tory councillor. <laughs> so, all right, okay, I'll come back some other time with some... She was secretly Dr. Strangelove, I think is what it is. I had to put some ideas in the back pocket, so dumping a giant amount of iron into the sea I'll save for next time, and I'll explain how that's actually good. Shut up. <laughs> Well, that's a beautiful note to uh, wrap things up on, I think. Um, thank you very much, everyone. I've had a blast. Thank yeah, you. I, yeah, thank I you. can't keep drinking. I just. <laughs> I think we've learned that it is bad, but we can probably make it less bad. Yeah. We just need to get yes, off our butts and, and do some shit. Exactly. And that jam socialism is and will always be the only way forward. Lovely stuff. Yes. Uh, thanks for coming to our TED Talk. <laughs> right, um, TEDx yeah. podcast is practice. <laughs> right, thanks very much, guys. Everyone, say goodbye. Goodbye. Cheers. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye. goodbye.